says this, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let us pray. God, we pray this morning what we just read, that God, your word would go forth Lord, that we would be convicted by it, that we would be called to account, that the secrets of our heart would be disclosed by it, and that we would fall on our face and worship you. God, this is the only proper response to hearing your word, and so I pray, God, be with us now by your spirit working in us. Help us to understand so that, God, you would be honored in what we do here in this place as we gather. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One author, one biblical author said this. He said, Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, that being the letters of Paul, that are hard to understand. This is Peter writing about Paul's writings. He says, that guy Paul, yeah, he writes with the wisdom that the Lord gives him. But some of the things that he writes, they're hard to understand. Can I get an amen? And let me tell you this. Peter, I think, read 1 Corinthians 14, 13 through 25 and said, that's hard to understand what Paul is talking about there. And let me tell you this, it's difficult. Some things that we're going, going on here in 1 Corinthians 14 that we're going to be looking at is hard. It stretches the mind. It makes, it makes us say, what is going on? So I don't want to stand up here, and I, I pray that you'd understand this every week that I stand up, is that I, I am not saying I have all the answers, that I'm the Bible answer man, and I know everything that is going on in every single text. This, I, I come to you offering my best, my best work that I've done this week trying to figure out what does Paul mean and want us to know by these things. 
that he writes here in 1 Corinthians 14. Because these things are hard to understand, as 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16 say. But it's a good thing that it's hard, right? It's good that we work through and think through things in the text that are hard. Because as Paul will warn us in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20, is that we don't want to be immature or ignorant about what God has revealed in His Word. We don't want to be immature or ignorant about these things. That's why we have verses 13 through 19. He's looking at how, do, how does tongues affect the church's unity, the church's upbuilding. And, and what he'll get at is this. It's either going to have one or two effects. Is, it, is that if uninterpreted tongues is going on in the life, in the context of worship in the church, is that it is going to create divisions and not unity in the church and this is why Paul is continuing his discussion from verses 1 through 12 that comprehension intelligibility is important when we talk about spiritual gifts particularly tongues it's important that we understand what is being said and going on and this is why he begins in verse 13 is this if you have the gift of tongues and if you are using the gift of tongues pray for what interpretation. Pray for interpretation so that other people can benefit from what is going on. Because spiritual benefit in the body of Christ will only come through intelligibility, comprehension, understanding, right? And so therefore, pray for it. Pray for that you may have the gift of interpretation as well, that you may be able to interpret what is being said. Because tongues Uninterpreted tongues, when done, engages the spirit or activates the person's spirit, but not their mind. And that's what he's getting at in the following verses, particularly verse 14 through 15. Is that you're seeing a little bit of, okay, when I, when I pray in a tongue or when I sing in tongues, is that it, it engages the spirit, but it doesn't always engage the mind. That the mind is left unfruitful. And it seems like Paul uses my spirit, my mind, in the sense of one is intelligible and the other is unintelligible. And when it's done unintelligibly, it doesn't engage my mind because I don't know what is being said, what is going on. And so he says, I can pray and sing in tongues, but it's still unintelligible. It doesn't engage the mind and my spirit. That seems to be why Paul is going back and forth with, but my spirit prays, but my mind doesn't, my mind is not engaged, my, I, I, I will sing praise with my spirit in tongues, but I will sing with my mind also intelligibly with actual words. And so the whole person is not engaged or activated when the use of tongues is being used. And what corporate worship should do when we gather together on Sunday mornings, when we worship God, is that the whole person should be engaged, mind and spirit. And all persons, not just this whole person, but all persons should be engaged. And uninterpreted tongues does not do that for the single person or for all the people gathered. And so Paul wants them to consider the impact, consider the impact that 
speaking in tongues has on the outsider. Look at verse 16. So if you do this, if you give thanks with your spirit, you know, speak in tongues, giving thanks, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying? And so he wants, Paul's saying, Corinthians, look, you're doing this, but consider the impact this has on the outsider. And the outsider seems to mean somebody who is a Christian because that outsider is able to say amen, right? So it seems like it's a person who is a Christian. But this outsider is somebody who doesn't have the, the gift of tongues or the gift of interpretation. So they're not benefiting from this at all. And so this outsider is in this context of worship, but they're unable to worship because they don't understand what's being said. They're unable, they're being hindered in their worship. They are unable to say amen. Basically, they're unable to attribute what's going on to God and say, yes, amen, praise God, because they don't know what's being said. It's kind of like sitting, sitting through like a foreign film, like in a foreign language or something. You sit through the whole thing, it's all in a different language, and at the end of it you're saying, I bet that's a great movie. Most translations have chosen to um, choose the word outsider for this word is that from this person's experience, when they come into the context of worship and everybody's speaking in tongues and they don't know what's going on, is that the Christian feels as though they are on the outside because they don't have the ability to speak in tongues or to interpret what's going on. So they feel on the outside, right? I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but have you ever been on the outside of an inside joke? Anybody ever been a part of that? You, you, you know, two people are talking about a joke that they only know what's going on, and you're like, hey, oh, man, you're trying to laugh along with them. <laughs> and they're like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. But then you're like, they're like, it's an inside joke. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get it. You know that feeling that you get? Like, oh, God, man, yeah, I'm, I'm on the outside of this one. That's what, the, that's what the outsider is feeling like when they enter into the place of worship and people are speaking in tongues. They don't have the gift. They don't have the gift of interpretation. And not only is their worship hindered, they're not able to say amen, but they feel on the outside. They're in the church, they're a Christian, and they feel on the outside. Which is very odd, right? A Christian coming to worship and feeling on the outside. That the one who should be welcomed, a Christian who should be welcomed in the body of Christ, feels unwelcomed in the body of Christ because people are using, using this gift kind of flippantly and have no concern for others who may not have the gift. It's as if the Christian's been invited and invited to a party but wasn't told that it was a costume party. Right? They got the invitation, but when they showed up there, they certainly did not feel welcomed or like they were supposed to be there. And so this is what this is what tongues do, Paul's saying, is that you have Christians coming in and you're all speaking in tongues and nobody's interpreting, and the person can't worship. They're hindered by their worship. And not only that, they feel alienated by what you're doing. As verse 11 will say, they'll feel like a foreigner in the church. And so Paul says, look, you know, verse 17, you Look, there may be genuineness about what you're doing. I, 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 don't, I don't take that off the table. 
You may be genuinely praising God and thanking God when you speak in your tongues. You may be genuinely doing that. But in the process of you genuinely praising God through tongues, you're hindering and hurting others, others, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ, who are attempting to worship God with you. And your use of your gifts, you are hurting and hindering other people who have come and gathered with you to worship the same God with you. And so Paul's saying, I, I don't disregard, I don't disregard or dismiss the value of tongues, but you have to put it in proper perspective into context. Right? Look at verse 18. This is how he kind of he throws down the cards on them. He you know shows his credentials. Uh, look, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. You think you speak in tongues? Ha! I speak more than all of you. Right? That's his credentials. That's his card. That's his badge. Look, I, I have the gift as well. But for the sake of the body, in the context of the church, in the gathering of worship, Paul exercises restraint. He exercises restraint for the sake of the body. Because what his ultimate goal is this. It's church, corporate edification, growth. That's his goal. That's the end game. He says, verse, ni verse 19, which is a great verse. Look, look I, I could speak to you a million, ten thousand words in a tongue. And it wouldn't benefit anybody. But I used my gift. But I, and I spoke 10,000 words in a tongue that nobody understood. But I'd rather speak five words that people can understand to instruct them. For the sake of another's benefit, I will have restraint to God. Then it does not edify the church. And so this is Paul's statement here. If what you're doing doesn't bring spiritual benefit to the church and growth to the church and edification of the church then it is not worship and glorifying God. And so, have restraint in the worship context. Because it does not engage people in their minds. They don't understand what you're saying and what's going on. And we want people to understand. You know, one thing I think we can take from a text like this is that we've talked a lot about over the couple weeks is that you know, we need to think more about us and not about me, I, in a sense. We need to think about the growth of not just my individual spiritual growth, but the growth of us together as a body of Christ. And that's kind of Paul's vision for the, these chapters, and particularly the whole book of 1 Corinthians. More about us and not about I, right? And so he's thinking about what, what brings benefit to everybody else, to other people, and how we use our gifts and all these things. But I think another thing that we learn here with this language of, of praying, singing, mind, spirit, and things like that, is that what Paul, I think, is kind of just drawing out for us is that worship should engage the whole person. Is that worship just doesn't just engage or activate our emotions. It should engage our minds as well. Right? And so what we're meaning is that we don't come to worship to, hey, let's get our, let's get our emotions and our feelings cranked up to, to level 11, right? 
We're all, you know, kind of, ra- you know, raving mad is the title of the sermon, right? We're all, you know, jolted up like a, like worship isn't like a, a, a pep rally. That's not what worship is. When we gather together, it's not to get rah, 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 get everybody excited about the football game. We go out and we try and win the game. That's not what worship does. Now, it does have a component where Jonathan Edwards uses this language, is that our worship and our knowledge of God should increase our affections for God. So when we gather together to worship, it is to increase our love and affections, the fires of our heart for God. But the way in which you stoke those fires for God is through knowledge of God. The only way that we can worship God rightly and well and stir those affections is if we know God accurately and well. So that's why I think Paul brings up this worship engages the mind and the emotions and our spirit. Right? We gather together so that we may increase our knowledge of God, so that it will increase our affections for God, and so that it will enhance our obedience to God. That's what we do when we gather here. Is that it's not just to get everybody rah-rah, though I, I, I want people to have greater affections for Jesus. We want each other to love Jesus more when they walk out these doors. But from the prayers that we pray to the songs that we sing to the sermons that we preach, we want to present this big vision of who God is so that knowing God accurately and rightly will stir in us a love and affection for Jesus. That's why we gather. It's to know God better. And so Paul seems to be drawn out some of this is that even in the use of your gifts and when you gather together worship, it's that the person and all people will be engaged not just in heart and emotions, but in mind as well. Is that we want to draw people's attention that the gospel, the gospel impacts our heads, our hearts, and our hands. That's what the gospel does. That's what truth does. And so, when Corinth is misusing the gift of spiritual uh, uh, of tongues, it's not engaging all the people, and it's not engaging the whole person. Right? And he goes on further in in the remaining verses to say is that that the misuse of tongues can have a dangerous effect on the church's unity. It can divide people. It can isolate people. It can ostracize people. It also doesn't engage the whole person in worship. The the mind, the heart, the hands, but it also has dangerous effects on the watching world, particularly on unbelievers. And how we use our spiritual gifts, it does, it does send either a good, faithful witness or an unfaithful witness to the world. That's point number two, verses 20 through 25, the church's witness, the use of our gifts. Because I really don't want to know, and I want to continue living like this. Ignorance is bliss. But that's actually the opposite point that Paul's making here. It's not good to ignorantly and voluntarily misuse the gift of tongues. It's not okay to go on being childish in our thinking and even in our behavior. It's not okay. And that's why verse 20 begins this way. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. 
Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. You need to think maturely, accurately, about the use of tongues and gifts in the context of worship. You cannot think as children on these things. You cannot be ignorant as bliss when it comes to the use of gifts in the context of worship. You can't be that way. No. You have to be mature in your thinking. And that in your behavior, you need to be innocent. Do not be children in your thinking. Be mature in your thinking. Be infants in evil if you want to be infantile in some way. Because the misuse of the gifts, particularly tongues in the context of worship, can have grave consequences on those who enter into the place of worship who may not be believers. And this is why Paul quotes Isaiah 28 here. It's an awesome text, and I'm going to ask you to turn to that if you would. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 12. And as you're turning there, I'll give you kind of the context of Isaiah 28 and tell you the reason why I think Paul is quoting Isaiah 28 here. Is that in Isaiah 28, God has clearly spoken to Israel. He said, you keep doing this, this is, I'll give you the Wes's paraphrase, and uh, you keep doing this, it's going to be bad news for you. It will be. You will be judged for what you're doing. So in Isaiah 28, God has spoken, spoken clearly to Israel, yet they still rejected him. And so in an ironic fashion, here's what God does. He says, okay, you're not going to listen to me when I tell you clearly not to do these things? So in ironic fashion, God, to signify his judgment on Israel, is that God sends Assyrians. He sends the Assyrians, which is God's chosen instrument of judgment. He sends the Assyrians to come and judge them. And one of the indications that Israel knows that they are being judged is that these Assyrians don't speak their language. They speak in a foreign tongue. They speak in a foreign lip that they don't understand. And Isaiah 28, if you want to write this down in your notes, if, if you want to nerd out for a second, Isaiah 28 seems to be picking up on the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28. So Deuteronomy 28, verse 49, is that Israel is given two ways to live. You can obey the covenant, and you can be blessed. Or you can disobey the covenant, and you can be what? Cursed. You can be cursed. And here's one of the ways that you will know that you have broken the covenant, and you've been disobedient, and that you will receive God's judgment. Deuteronomy 28, verse 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. So one of the signs that Israel is being judged is that a nation comes and they don't understand their language. And that's kind of the hallmark, that's the benchmark, that's like the sign that says, oh no, we don't understand what they're saying, this is not good news, the Assyrians are not bringing us good news. And so this is what Isaiah is bringing up. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 12. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. That's not good news. That's not good news, right? To whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And so... The, the, 
foreign speech, the foreign language, is the symbol of judgment for Israel. It's the symbol of judgment. It's the sign that they have been disobedient. The foreign, unintelligible language signified God's judgment on Israel. Israel's confusion caused by unintelligible language by the foreign invader is a sign of their judgment. And so this is why Paul quotes in verse 21, he's quoting Isaiah 28, 11 and 12. Is that he's saying the confusion caused by tongues in the gathering of the church on the believer, the confusion that the believer has when he hears all these people speaking in tongues is a sign of their impending judgment people speaking in tongues and it's uninterpreted their first response is not oh i'm standing in awe of what is going on in this place wow this is spiritual this is super spiritual what's going on here no they're saying y'all are crazy and whoever god that you're worshiping he's crazy too that's their response you're raving mad and so (laughs) the word actually there for raving mad is meneste which is where we get the word, can anybody guess? Maniac. Y'all are maniacs in here. And so, these people, these unbelievers who come into the worship service, and they hear all these people speaking in tongues, they were already in unbelief. They were already apart from Christ when they came in. But now, the church's abuse and misuse of tongues it actually further cements their unbelief. Let me say that one more time. Is that they walked in the doors in unbelief. They walked in the doors apart from Christ. And when they come into the context of worship and they hear all these people speaking in tongues that's uninterpreted and they're confused, they're further cemented in their unbelief and rejection of Christ. This is crazy. This is mad. This is the very reason why I reject Jesus. I'm out of here. I'm hitting the exits. The misuse of the spiritual gift of tongues can cement a person's unbelief even further if tongues are misused. So Paul's point is this. It's not to the unbeliever's advantage that you speak speak in tongues in corporate worship. It knowingly obscures the gospel and not, it doesn't clarify it. It knowingly obscures it. And so this is why Paul says, this is why I prefer prophecy and not tongues when you gather together for worship. Because listen to the unbeliever's response when they hear hear prophecy. It's a different response than when they hear all the tongues going on in the context of worship. It says this, but if all prophecy is prophesied and and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God. That's the response. Complete opposite, right? Complete opposite. The truth is clarified in their prophecy. It's clear. It's not hidden as it would be in tongues. And as we saw earlier in chapter 14, the gift of prophecy, it it encourages, it consoles, right? It builds up. But look at what prophecy also does here. It convicts. It calls to account. It calls people on the carpet. 
It discloses the secrets of the heart. Now, again, I, I've said this three times in a row. We're talking about prophecy, not specifically people you know, looking into a crystal ball and looking into the future. We're talking about truth that's being disseminated, uh, divine, revelation that is being distributed. And so what this does when truth is distributed like this, the truth has an exposing feature to it. What David Garland says this, what are exposed are the secrets that are buried like splinters in the hidden recesses of the heart that one hopes no one will ever discover. That's what truth does. It exposes us. All the dark secrets that we hide deep within that we hope no one will ever discover. This is what the truth does. It removes it and exposes it for all to see, particularly God. It should remind you of the verses in Hebrews 4, 4, 12, and 13. Great verses. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit. Joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is what the word of God does. Discerns the intentions and the thoughts of the heart. And no creature, no person is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him we must give account. There is no hiding from God here. There is no hiding from the truth. It will expose us for who we really are. But here's the great thing about God's truth. and What it does here for the person, unbeliever, walking into the, the worship. Is that when the truth exposes us for who we really are. When it does that, it also drives us to the one we really need. Jesus. That when the truth, rather than hearing everybody speak in uninterpreted tongues, raving mad, they make a profession. What they have seen and heard leads them to believe that God is truly in this place and among his people. That's what it says. They don't say, you're raving mad. They say, God is really here. God is really among you. God is really dwelling within you. And I can see the fruits of that. And if you would, just give me one second just to, just to tease something out real quick. If you would turn back to Isaiah with me. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45, verse 14. Is that the prophets saw a day like this coming. When people would see the works of the works of God's people, when unbelievers in foreign nations would see the works of God's people, and they would respond similarly. And I think Paul is picking up on this, is that we're seeing the fruition of this, we're seeing the fulfillment of it. When the church uses the gifts accurately, people respond in that they want more of God. And this is what the prophets, this is what the prophets promised. Isaiah 45, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature. So this is all the nations, Egypt and Cush and Sabians. They shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you and they shall come over in chains and bow down to you. 
they will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. So the nations are coming and saying, I see what is going on in your life. I see what is going on among you. And that means God is with you. And I want to be, be where you're at. If you'll turn to one more place with me, please. Zechariah chapter 8. I promise this will be well worth you flipping through the pages of the prophets. Zechariah chapter 8 says a very similar thing here. About the nations upon hearing what upon hearing and seeing God's people. It says this, Zechariah chapter 8, verses 22-23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples, that's nations, shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts, I myself, I'm going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. So the nations are coming and saying, we want what the Lord's got. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew. Isn't that a a great just like picture, right? They're like riding on the coattails of God's people. Hey, I'm... Until you take me where you're going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to your jacket as long as I can. White knuckle it. And you're going to bring me where you're going. It says this. They shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you for we have heard that God is with you. This is the response of the unbelieving nations when they see God's people rightly following God's instructions. They want more of God. They want him. And this is Paul's point, is that when you are worshiping together and there is unity within the body and that you are using your gifts accurately as outlined in the scripture, people, unbelievers are going to come in, they're going to say, I want what they got. I want that God. I want to know him. I, I, I'm going to grab onto your jacket and you're, you're going to take me to him. This is what happens when the church is unified and we're using our gifts to benefit one another and not just for our own spiritual benefit. that our gifts have an evangelistic purpose to them. When we use our gifts accurately in the context of worship, they have an evangelistic purpose so that people may see that God is truly among us. When the church prophesies, when we use our gifts rightly, unbelievers see God for who He really is. His nature is clarified and not confused by the use of our gifts. And people want more of him don't we want that to be our testimony cross point don't we want that to be our testimony is that when people gather here with us when they come and worship here with us they see us rightly praying rightly fellowshipping rightly using our gifts in the context of worship singing about God singing the right things about God praying the right things about God preaching from the truth of God and people say I want more of that I want more of that God. Take me to him. Make corporate worship feel more like a concert. I listened to a pastor, this is years back, who's saying he was going to play Highway to Hell on Easter Sunday because that drew unbelievers. That was their kind of music. 
We want to make unbelievers feel comfortable in worship. We want to make them feel more at home here. What 1 Corinthians 14 says is we don't want to make them feel at home. We, we don't want them to be comfortable. We want them to be convicted by all. Their hearts disclosed, exposed by the truth of God. That's what we want. So our goal is not to be to, to succumb to, let's make a concert. How can we best appeal? Let's do some big giveaways. Let's give away iPods and things like that to, to, to draw people in. And I think I've said this to you before. What you win people with is what you win them to. You win people with giveaways and secular music and iPods and stuff like that. You just win them to an iPod. You don't win them to Jesus. And so what Paul's not, he's not saying, hey, be seeker sensitive, consider the unbeliever, consider doing all these things and make them feel at home. No, what he is saying is this. We must strive to remove any obscurities without compromising the integrity of the truth of the gospel in our corporate worship service. Is that we must strive to remove obscurities. Doing things that would lead them to believe that God is not really in this world. And so that, our corporate worship service has to be with that in mind. So from the prayers that we pray to the songs that we sing to the messages that we, that we give, is that we want to draw people's eyes to Jesus. And that may mean people are convicted by sin, that people are called to the carpet, that people are, their hearts are disclosed. Because this is why it matters what we do here on Sunday mornings when we gather together. Our worship is a witness to the world. What we do here on Sunday mornings is a witness to the world. It is bringing edification to the body of Christ. I don't want to, it's, it's two facets. Is that it does bring benefit. So when we sing together, when we pray together, when we hear God's word together, when we baptize, when we take the Lord's Supper, it does bring spiritual benefit to those who are participating in those things. But they are also a witness to the unbelieving world when they come through our doors. Right? So it matters what we do and how we do it when we gather here on Sunday mornings. And I, I will tell you this, the elders, uh, along with Shane, is that we take very seriously what we do here on Sunday mornings. And there is intentionality about what we do here on Sunday mornings when we gather together for worship. We're, you know, me and Shane aren't throwing this together five minutes before. What song are you going to sing? Oh, yeah, yeah, which, what, what sermon are you going to preach? I don't know. I'll, I'll download something off the internet. You know, it, there's intentionality behind this because it matters what we do here in this place when we gather together for worship because it is a witness to the world. We want to accurately reflect the gospel that we proclaim. Now, people may come in, they may say, your message is crazy. Or that you're crazy for believing that message, I'm fine with being called a maniac for that. For believing the gospel. It sure it's crazy. It is foolishness. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. It's foolishness. But we don't want people to think that we're crazy because we're misusing our gifts in the context of worship. And, and what I, I another point for us to think about is this is that when we read verses 24 through 25, it seems that it's, it's not just one person's responsibility, but it seems like it's a corporate responsibility when it comes to unbelievers walking through our doors. 
convicted by all. By all called to account. Seems like there's a corporate responsibility here that we each have for when unbelievers come into our worship service. And that accountability or that responsibility may be that we use our gifts rightly here. That's our responsibility is it's not just for the benefit of other people, but I want to use my gifts rightly, think maturely about my gifts because it has a witnessing effect to the world. But I think we can go even farther than that. Is that it also comes down to the way in which the gospel goes forward in convicting and calling people to account, disclosing the secrets of the heart, leading people to faith. Is that everyone is called to participate in speaking the truth following our gathering together. What does that look like, Wes? Well, here's what I think it looks like. It's normal. How, how are you going to respond to that? Do you follow Jesus? If you do, that's great. Let's walk together. But if you don't, how do you, how do you think about what you heard this morning? It's a corporate responsibility. Is that we have a corporate responsibility when it comes to the church's unity and the church's witness to the world. And so, what will people say about us, Cross Point? Is God truly among us? as we worship together, as they see how we use our gifts, as we normalize gospel conversations, that it shouldn't be abnormal to talk about the gospel. It shouldn't be weird and like, oh, we're going to talk about that? That's odd. Oh, no, it's normal to speak about these things, even after worship. Hey, we, we heard a great message. Well, subpar message from West this morning. The text was great. Um, but can we talk, would you like to talk more about what it means for the truth to expose our sin? And draw us to Christ? Is the Lord truly among us? Or are we presenting a picture to people that our God is raving mad and further cementing people in their unbelief? Because every Sunday morning we want to make the gospel clear through our songs, prayer, preaching, fellowship, and the use of our gifts. And this gospel, if you're an unbeliever this morning watching online or in this service, I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank you for coming this morning. But I pray and hope that hearing this morning's text, you would see that the truth of God's word is about exposing you to who you really are so that you would be drawn to who you really need, which is Jesus. Is that I pray that by the Spirit's work in you, that he will convict you of your sin, call you on the carpet and say, look, sin, its consequences are death and hell and judgment. But this morning, what you really need is what you really heard about, and that is this Jesus Christ who has come perfectly, and he has taken on our sin and our punishment for our sin in his body on the tree, and he has died that we might live to righteousness. And through his death, his substitutionary death in our place, he has given us grace, forgiveness, truth, and love, and mercy. Something that we could not obtain on our own, but Christ has given freely to us. This morning, I hope that God exposes you to who you really are so that you may find out who you really need is him.
And I hope that our worship service has demonstrated that to you. That the Lord is really at work in the people who are here. And that He really is desiring to be at work in you as well. And that this morning, the Lord can be at work in you, unbeliever, if you repent and turn away from the sin that God is exposing in you. If you trust in Jesus, knowing that the sin that you have committed can be cleansed and redeemed, and you can find new life in this Christ, and only in Him. This morning, you can join in on that work as well, and on what this body has together in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. And God, even as...